Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. If we were to characterize 2020 using just a few words, COVID-19 would likely be one of them. But racism would likely be another. And racism and its evil denial of human dignity is our topic today. But just before we get to our feature interview, let me share a quick word about Cardis. We're a think tank based in Hamilton, Ontario. We generally deal in public policy, all focused on three things, helping us live together well, honoring our many differences, and protecting the vulnerable. Racism certainly touches on those issues, but what can we do about it? For that, I've invited Ian Rowe to join me. He is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. It is great to have you on The Long Way, Ian. Daniel, uh, thank you so much for having me. You know, race is an issue and racism is an issue that, um, I mean, it's, it's not a new issue. It's been around for a long time. That's an understatement. But it has been perhaps more top of mind for a lot of us, uh, especially since the killing of George Floyd in, in July in the summer. One issue uh, that's, that's, that it's brought to light, of course, is, you know, systemic racism. That's, that's a term that we've started to become more familiar with, generally speaking, in Canada and the United States. And, you know, uh, relations with police forces and racial relations those have become very important for a lot of us. One thing that I've found interesting is, of course, that there is a different um, there's a different take on the issue on either side of the border. You know, Canada and the United States have different histories, and um, different communities have different experiences. I don't know if you've ever been able to make any observations of just on your own of differences between Canada and the United States on an issue like this. Uh, not not specifically uh, between Canada uh, and the United States. And frankly, my sense is it would be a gross generalization if I were to do so. I mean, within the United States and even within the Black community, you know, there, there's sort of this general narrative that you know, black people want to defund the police, black people uh, feel that the police are hostile towards them. And I would just say that when you actually survey large numbers of uh, people within black communities, particularly within low income black communities, you'll find a lot of support uh, for the police, because frankly, it is often is it's the police who are defending the very communities uh, that have high levels of crime. Uh, and so I think there's a lot, there's unfortunately sometimes the generalizations made about how police are perceived, um, it, particularly from the very communities that purportedly are against them, when in fact, there's a lot more support and, and, and a recognition of how integral the police are to the safety of their given communities. Well, on that and on perceptions of police, it's interesting. Uh, there was a poll that came out in Canada, actually, just in the last few weeks. So it was within October from the Angus Reid Institute. 
and it it asks Canadians if there is a serious problem in policing when it comes to the way Indigenous and Black people are treated. And at least in Canada, there were minorities, whether you looked at the Indigenous respondents or visible minority respondents or Caucasian respondents, there were minorities, but maybe a plurality of people who would say, yeah, there is a problem. But what's also interesting is that when you broke it down based on whether there's a a problem in my neighborhood, in my area, or nationally, when you took the issue nationally, there was the largest agreement. But when you looked at in my neighborhood, in my area, uh, my neck of the woods, the numbers were the lowest, which suggests there may be some kind of uh, disconnect between what I'm actually seeing on the ground and what I might be hearing in the news. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it, I mean, it's, you know, it's not surprising when you look at when you look at the actual data. So, you know, and, and it is amazing that when you um, talk about issues of race, you know, you, you sort of immediately go to the police and you immediately go to, um, you know, is the core issue the relationship between the police and the black community. Again, this is where data, you know, really is important. If you look at, again, in the United States, if you look at the, the actual data of, of uh, for example, homicide, uh, there is a far greater prevalence of, of young black men being killed by other uh, young black men, uh, certainly much significantly orders of magnitude higher than incidents between uh, the police and black men. And it's not to diminish, you know, if there's any incident in which a police officer goes rogue and is aggressive and it does something illegal, that person should be prosecuted to the full full extent of the law. But the disproportionality of the coverage and the attention on these very isolated incidents versus what unfortunately is happening almost every single day Um it, it just skews the conversation. And so part of part of what I like to do is, you know, let, let's expand the horizon. If we're really concerned with the lives of black people or, or people living in communities in which there's a lot of violence, let's look at all of the violence and, and what are the root causes if, we, if we're really genuinely interested in addressing these issues. Okay, so when you hear a term like systemic racism or racial justice, what comes to mind for you when you think about those things? What kind of response do those terms spark? Yeah, it's a good question because systemic racism is definitely a term that you're hearing very frequently. And, and so when I think about it, you know, I, I typically think about in the United, in the United States context uh, is at a time when racism was literally enshrined into law. You know, there used to be a time where if you were a white person and actually wanted to educate a black person, you literally could be fined and put in jail. Uh, you know, there were, there were laws that segregated, uh, you know, black people from whites you know, in school, in work, in all kinds of uh, public places. And so there was definitely a time where there was literal systemic structural racism enshrined into law. And because of the work of a lot of amazing people over the course of generations, much of that structural systemic racism uh, enshrined into law was eliminated. And so what we're left with now is 
um, claims of systemic racism for sure. And this is certainly not to say that racism doesn't exist. But for me, you know, you know, the reason I run schools, you know, I run schools in the heart of the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan with primarily, you know, low income kids that are, you know, black and Hispanic who are undoubtedly going to face all forms of challenges in their lives, partly of which could be because of their skin color, is to not create this impression that if they do encounter racism, then they're simply debilitated that they're just so powerless in the face of someone who doesn't like them because of their race, that they have no ability to create opportunity and prosperity for themselves. And so I try to think about present day racism as a challenge that we should all certainly be addressing, um, but, but not in the context of uh, you know, if you're a black kid, you know, you live in a white supremacist world, the country is irredeemably racist. And so therefore, in order for you to succeed, you have to wait for a white person to confess their privilege or, you know, declare that they're a white supremacist. They've had unearned benefits. And, and only then can you as a black person be successful. I actually think that that is as insidious um, a racist idea. So I try to put, you know, in the context that this country, United States, certainly has a history of oppression, and there's certainly remnants of that, but we've made far too much progress to believe that if there are issues that exist within the Black community or other um, communities, that the sole cause of those um, challenges is because of racism. I'm just going to sort of connect the dots here based on what you've just said and based on things that you've written at the American Enterprise Institute. What you've just said tells me that there's a strong connection to the issue of personal agency, which you've written a lot about. So how does how does that connect to this entire conversation? Yeah, so I think a lot of uh, folks within your audience might be familiar with a concept called grit. Um, and if you're not, you know, grit is this idea that you have dogged uh, self-determination, that you set out a goal and that you're determined to get there. You, you, know, you will persevere. And it is an amazing characteristic that most people that are successful have, have demonstrated some level of grit because they've failed and they've had to get back up. But the idea of grit is that you don't, you don't have that dogged self-determination unless you first believe that your actions actually matter, that your effort will help shape the outcome. That is the self-belief. That's what agency is all about, that there are forces within your control. Even if there are a lot of forces not in your control that are working against you, what you control is your ability to respond. And that's what agency is. And the reason I write so much about that is because in any context, for any human being, life is not fair. You know, life is going to throw a host of challenges at you. The question is, how do you respond to those challenges, whether they be challenges that may come from, uh, you know, it might be racism, it might be uh, someone that opposes you for nothing to do with racism. It might be physical constraints. It might be health challenges. The point is, agency is the is the the in essence the most powerful character based strength 
that one can develop because it's a belief in yourself. And the reason this is so important today, at least in the United States, there's a there's an emerging dominant narrative that if you're black, you're you've been born with a boot on your neck, with a white person's boot on your neck, and that in this country from its very inception, you know, its founding ideals, quote, were false when they were written. That's what the New York Times 1619 project falsely claims. But that's a narrative that's out there. And if you hear over and over and over again, the country is irredeemably racist, it's white supremacist, you know, anti-black racism runs in the very DNA of the country. At some point, you might feel, well, what's the point? You know, I mean, if I, you know, I was born with my skin color, it's an immutable characteristic. And so you might start to feel like, you know, why even bother? And for me, that is lethal. That is lethal in the minds of young people. Instead, you acknowledge that there will be challenges, but then we work with young people to understand here are your pathways to power. Here are the things that you do control in your own life. You do control the ability to work hard as it relates to your education. You do uh, control the ability to, you know, get up, get a job, go to school, you know, you know, you know, do well in your work. And if you have a family, you know, if you have a child, the high likelihood is that child and you will have much better economic prospects if you get married first. And that, you know, that, and that's just real data. This doesn't mean that you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I mean, America is based on this idea of individual responsibility and the responsibility of mediating institutions like strong families, churches, schools to help shape the character of each individual. But we can never lose sight of the power of personal agency because at the end of the day, you will face challenges, but you have to have the belief that you have the um, opportunity and the, and the power to control your own destiny. Tell me a little bit more about the, the path, you know, the, the sequence of, of where you go in order to um, build wealth, wealth that can be transferred from generation to generation, uh, and, and to improve the circumstances for yourself and for your family. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, um, uh, again, in the United States and, and similar to Canada and, and, and in fact, similar to around the world, because these are human uh, characteristics. But, you know, in the United States, there are a few core, core values around family, faith, free enterprise, hard work, entrepreneurship. Those are typically the tools groups of all races have used to move from persecution to prosperity. And the, and the beautiful thing about those um, values, those practices, they're accessible to everyone. And so in the United States, a lot of data has been um, analyzed around what have been the practices of people who may have started off in poverty and ended up in the middle class or beyond. You know, is there anything that ties them together, you know, are they all just LeBron James that you're, you know, that are great basketball players, you know, are they all just exceptions or are there any patterns that we can learn from? And it turns out there are. 
And so in multiple different studies, regression analyses have been done that say, if you finish your education, even just a high school degree, but if you finish your education, if you then get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline and responsibility of work, and then if you have children, marriage first, for people who have followed that series of decisions into young adulthood, 98% avoid poverty. It's a staggering statistic. And, and But by the way, it's 98%, meaning it's not 100%, meaning there's no guarantee. You know, life is, life is a set of probabilities. We all know people that may not have followed that series of decisions and have turned out to be successful. We've known people that have uh, followed those series of decisions and turned out not to be successful. But on a macro basis, the data is undeniable. And so one of the things I think is very important is to teach this to the next generation so that as they come to start to encounter their decisions about their education, about their work, about the timing of family formation, they at least know what the likelihood of success will be depending on the decisions that they make in their own life. And, and that's a pathway. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it, again, it's not prescriptive, but for many kids in many communities, particularly lower income communities, they may not on a day-to-day basis see the models to see the exemplars. I mean, I live in a community right outside of New York City, a nice little suburb. And, you know, virtually everyone in this community is married, lots of home ownership, lots of stable families. And so kids are kind of raised, you know, it's in the, you know, when you're a fish in water, you don't, you don't, you don't even realize that boy, there's water all around you. And so you, you kind of know, or at least have a good sense of what are the decisions as I make my rite of passage into young adulthood. In a lot of communities, that th- these decisions that have a greater likelihood of success associated with them aren't known. And so that's part of the reason I run schools, is to ensure that young people are given a real shot. This is how you build agency. This is how you build the ability to have choices within your own life. Can I just zoom out for one sec? We're actually running out of time, but I, I do want to get even just a quick response from you on what the role of government might be. Uh, what needs to change uh, sort of at the at that level to give people a, a greater sense of justice, something they can even feel emotionally? Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, government is obviously has a, has a huge role to play in the lives of uh, our citizens, but it's not the sole lever. Um, and I think sometimes we get so obsessed with policymaking, we forget the power of culture and community and personal agency. So I would just want to just put government within a uh, a somewhat confined role. Let Let me give you an example. You know, in the United States, there's a lot of talk around the racial wealth gap in that the average African American family has only one tenth the wealth of the average white family. And so some people say, well, that see, that's proof of legacy of racial oppression. It's so big. There's nothing uh, an individual black person can do to close the racial wealth gap. And so therefore, the only answer is that the U.S. government has to um, distribute about $15 trillion 
you have to start writing checks of about one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollars per black person who's a descendant of of uh, slaves, and and you just think like, whoa, really? Especially then when you look at the data and you see that well, you take that same data and you find that when you take into account family structure, so that for example, the average married two parent black household has nearly twice the wealth of the average white single uh, parent household, you say, huh, maybe there are factors outside of race that you can control, that maybe you can generate wealth wealth within your own lifetime. Or take country of origin, Nigerian Americans, Ghanaian Americans, who were recent immigrants to the United States, far outpace whites and other ethnic categories in terms of generating wealth. And so it just starts to to say that if you if you really think about uh, causality and other levelers, you realize that government doesn't have to be the only player in terms of creating prosperity. The right role of government, you know, typically for me, it's obviously removing uh, systemic barriers like like race, like as it had been enshrined into law. But generally, the role for government should be in what I call the three T's, targeted, uh, timely, and temporary, meaning targeted in the sense of if, if, there's a sp- if there's a particular group of people that need uh, some kind of government aid, it should be very focused on that group of people. Timely means it should happen in a, in a period of time where it can actually have some impact while the group is facing whatever uh, you know, disadvantage they're, they're, they're suffering, and then temporary, meaning that this isn't, this isn't a permanent uh, endeavor. And so you know, that could apply to welfare, it could apply to many uh, types of government programs, but generally, you know, government should never become a permanent solution uh, that uh, an individual sees as the vehicle through which they're going to live their life. That turns into entitlement and dependency, and some would argue, at least in the United States, we've created some of that through some of the well-intended policies that we've generated. Ian Rowe, very insightful. Thank you. And we'll just have to end it there. Great conversation. Really appreciated having you on the podcast. Thank you very much, and I'd, I'd love to do it again. As we close out every episode of The Long Way, I want to connect again with my producer, Rachel Fatima, to just put a bow on on this show. Rachel, welcome back. Always great to join in. I found Ian's focus on mediating institutions very important, very interesting, because I think it describes a reality that it's not just you versus life or versus society, there are institutions we're all part of that make a big difference. Families, schools, workplaces, faith communities, each one kind of does its bit, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's so good to crave change and it's good to look towards uh, a, a better future. And I, I find the conversation around the things that we can do quite freeing because a lot of the conversations I encounter are calling on very large institutions to make very large changes. And oftentimes I get frustrated with, well, what can we, you and me do today, tomorrow, this week? And it, it sort of opens up that conversation more. That's what that's the exciting part, I think, of what Ian talks about, that there are 
you know, practical steps uh, that we can take. And I also found his description of the success sequence rather striking. Uh, and it reminded me in a way of the Canadian marriage map, not to be too self-promotion-y, if that's a word. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, there is the, this, the Canadian marriage map of stats on all various aspects of, of marriage and family in Canada that Cardos has, has put out. And there's a fair bit in there about children's living arrangements. That aspect is certainly well covered there. Uh, also, the connection between marriage and uh, income. So definitely well worth checking out on our website. Yeah, it's always interesting to have specifically Canadian data on these kinds of things. So we have it over at our website, cardis.ca slash marriage map, all one word, if you want to go check that out for yourself. Uh, great stuff. Thank you again, uh, Rachel. And as always, uh, if you're not liking, following, subscribing to The Long Way, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you're missing out. Uh, you'll find out when our next episode is out. So definitely do that. And uh, do write to us if you've got some thoughts on anything that we've discussed in this episode or, or other episodes. Media at Cardus.ca. Cardus is C-A-R-D-U-S ca so for all the team at cardis and at the long way i'm daniel prusilides